Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Michael Waits. Michael Waits. Hi, this is Michael Waits from Asia Tech Podcast Stories. I'm with Mikhail Abdullah, the co-founder and CEO of 8 Securities. How are you? Doing very well, thank you. It turns out we are in the same city. Oh, we are. <laughs> which Surprisingly. We, which we did not know. I, I wasn't really paying attention. I've been traveling so much over the past week that I really wasn't paying that much attention, actually. How are you? Doing very well. Busy. Really, really busy, but that's a good thing. Yeah, busy is good. I mean, there's a lot of activity, obviously, in this sector, I think, no? There is. There is. Um, you know, fintech is... is Booming everywhere. Um, I'm fortunate enough to spend sort of half my time in Hong Kong, half my time in Tokyo, and it's really ramping up in both places. So it's been been fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, look, you were kind of at the forefront of this. If you spent a bunch of years at E-Trade as well, so you're kind of looking at this from both sides to a certain extent, no? Exactly. You know, I, I think people when they talk about fintech, it's like it's a new phenomenon. But I feel like I've been in fintech my whole career. You know, yeah. as you said, I started out at at E-Trade, and if E-Trade isn't fintech, I don't know what is. <laughs> okay, don't make me laugh like that. That's not fair. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, E-Trade was a pioneer in the fintech space, right? If financial technology, we used to say when I was at Goldman Sachs, like it's in the name. <laughs> Right. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, the name of the game was uh, disintermediating uh, traditional uh, brokerage. Um, so, yeah, it was at the forefront. Can you tell me what that was like, literally like in the trenches? And I'm a little bit familiar, right? So a guy named Josh Levine is a guy I used to work with when I was at um, Morgan Stanley. So you can now you can tell how old I am. Um, <laughs> I know Josh, Josh really well. We I'm work sure, together. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Um, and remember, Josh was not there at the founding of, of E-Trade. He came in a little bit later, right? But when, and I, I said this to somebody else on a podcast recently. I think I probably said this to Ned. Do you, you know Ned Phillips, right? I know Ned very well. Yeah. So I said this to Ned as well. And that was, you know, when Josh left Morgan Stanley, I thought to myself, okay, now everything is changing. And I was, maybe I just didn't have the, hmm, maybe I was too risk averse. Let's just say that to leave at the time and, and branch out on my own. But you could see, you knew it was going to happen, and we just watched it happen. So why don't you tell me a little bit what it was like. You've been at this for 17 years so or more, no? Uh, <laughs> why don't we keep it at 17? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, no, it was, it was an amazing time. I was, um, I was actually at Deloitte, so I was doing management consulting, and E-Trade was a client, and I was uh, working in Atlanta, um, and on the last day of the engagement, uh, I wasn't looking to sort of change jobs or, or change career, but on the last day of the engagement, I went on their intranet and saw this, this opening for an international marketing role, um, in, uh, in Menlo Park in Silicon Valley. And it just looked interesting. Um, one thing led to another. I applied, um, ultimately got the job and then moved out to, uh, to California and began at E-Trade around 2000. What was the view? What was the view, sorry, of the people you were working with at the time, right? I mean, because you—that's Deloitte was actually a, a pretty plump job back then. It was, uh, it was, and, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. Um, but you know, for me, uh, maybe the opposite of you—I've got a completely unhealthy appetite for risk. So <laughs> it, it, it just looked like fun, and um, and I kind of wanted to change, so I just went for it. And yeah, it was it was a it was a great experience there. Where where are you from originally? So I'm ethnically half Arab, half Pakistani, uh, but grew up in the in the UN. That makes me really popular at airports. You know, yeah. let me tell you, you. You and me both. 
um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I split my life actually between uh, London and the U.S. Okay, okay. But the reason why I ask is because you have a lot of international experience, right? And for most people that grew up in the United States, you know, international means Canada or maybe London if they're lucky, right? But you've basically right. been all over the world. Hong Kong, the UAE, London, I mean, all over the place. And I'm just wondering, how do you think that shaped the rest of your career? No, I mean, and, and I, you know, all of that experience um, was was due to, due to E-Trade. So I worked in E-Trade's international business. Right. And, you know, it was a it was a, a playground. So we had a $50 million marketing budget. Wow. Uh, we had operations in 15 countries. And it was just fun. I mean, we were all over the place. So, um, yeah, I had the opportunity to work in, uh, obviously, in the U.S., in London, in Dubai, Mumbai, uh, spent a bit of time in Singapore, and then most recently in in Hong Kong. And it just, um, all of that was with E-Trade, and it was just, a you know, an amazing experience. So when you were in Dubai, were you at the DIFC? Yes, yeah. I actually set up a, a business from scratch there for E-Trade. And what, what was it like there? Because 2006, 2007, to set up any kind of financial business, and particularly in Dubai where there was a lot of sort of real estate speculation and other speculation as well, was that did that make it any more difficult or were the tailwinds just too strong? It was, uh, you know, I, it, it was difficult. You know, D- Dubai and, and actually my, my family is actually Emirati, so I, I sort of know the, know the place quite well. And Got it's, it really sort of shiny on the outside looking in. But when you get entrenched, um, it's just like any other um, country in the Middle East or South Asia. It's incredibly inefficient, uh, bureaucratic. All those issues persisted. And we were the first uh, online business to apply for a, a license with the DFSA and at the DIFC. And wow. uh, it was not easy. It was not easy. Yeah, I mean, what was that process like? Like, tell me a little bit more about what that bureaucracy was like. Because for me, and, and I've done a lot of work on the UAE, both in Abu Dhabi, and not there, but just thinking about it and doing research on it, and Dubai as well. And I've, I've as an outsider, I look at the Emirates and I just think, wow, those guys, the leader of those that, that country has just been amazing in sort of seeing the future and being really progressive in their way, not just to develop the financial sector, but other sectors as well, you know, in a move away from oil, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious what it looks like from the inside for you and, and how that bureaucracy kind of got in the way or maybe how you were able to get through it. Yeah, well, I think the biggest challenge we had is um, we obviously had conversations before uh, I moved to, to Dubai, as you would imagine. I can I can't. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so so moved to Dubai and, you know, I think we were sort of, um, you know, led to believe it would be a pretty rapid process, um, no red tape, but it was it was quite the opposite. And, you know, part of the issue was we were clearly a retail business, you know, a B2C direct to retail business. But at the time, um, there was this sort of gray area where the DFSA didn't want any businesses marketing to retail customers in the UAE, but rather high net worth individuals. So as a sort of online business, the proposition being access and low cost, you know, they were only only allowing us to talk to, you know, people with a, I think it was a hundred thousand dollar, um, liquid net worth. And, and that obviously limits uh, the size of the market. So that was one one issue that, that we had to kind of work through. Um, the other thing, which um, is going to get me in trouble, but I think at the time, I think the DIFC was really a, a, a real estate play. I mean, I think they were, you know, the name of the game was, was renting offices, right? And, and, I, and so I, I don't think 
it it's clearly not as advanced as it is is today. It was it was really early. But what do you think the reason was for the aversion to letting let's just say lower net worth right um, in the UAE as opposed to just servicing high net worth clients? I mean, E Trade itself was really the democratization of trading in the United States. Right, right. I think the I think our issue was uh, we were offering offshore investing, so primarily U.S. markets, uh, and okay. some degree, you know, protection, wanting to keep um, assets in the Got country. It. Probably some protection of the banks and brokers um, that wanted to move into that space as well. So probably a number of reasons. Right. So there was a fear about expatriation of capital, slightly. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Got, got it. So you were, and then you moved from the UAE to Hong Kong. Is that right? Uh, to Mumbai. Went to went to India. <laughs> yeah, that so, must have been awesome. Um, <laughs> you're uh, laughing. Not quite. Not quite. So no, it was so. After Dubai, um, E Trade did a joint venture in India. Did a majority joint venture in India, and I was asked to go out there and and sort of lead that that integration effort. And you know, it was it was an amazing experience. But what's funny about it is my wife is actually Indian, and as I mentioned before, I'm half Pakistani. So this is sort so of good. Con- yeah, considered yeah that that's not a great pair, but considered <laughs> ourselves really. Um, in other words, we were overly confident. Oh, we'll go to India. We spent all our summers there. It's our family. We know how to do this kind of thing. We yeah. know how to do this exactly, and it just rocked our world. I mean, it was. It was so difficult, um, uh, and it's just the little things, right? You know, we had we had a, uh, uh, our first child, and so you know, just someone was always sick. The logistics were hard. If it rained, it would take two hours to get to work, which should normally be a fifteen-minute drive. And someone once said, you know, as an expat, India is an acronym for "I'll never do it again," and I have to agree. <laughs> Maybe this is really where you and I are different. Like, I like that, actually. I like that challenge. So I, I helped Goldman Sachs build a business that included doing a joint venture in India on the trading side. It was a little bit earlier, back in 2004, 2005. And boy, it was hard. Yeah. Like, really hard. I did not go to India to do it, but I worked with our Indian teammates there. And, you know, it was just hard, culturally hard, logistically hard, like you said. But boy, when we succeeded, it just felt so good. Yeah. No, I mean absolutely. I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't want to, don't want to give the impression it wasn't, uh, no, it wasn't a great, all. great experience. Um, but it was, you know, it was, it was tough. Exactly, like you know, culturally, it was very difficult. And sort of joking aside, being, you know, Pakistani and yep. trying to yep. lead a, an organization there uh, wasn't easy. Nope. So some of those issues kind of crept in as well. But it was, um, no, it was, it was a, it was a great experience and, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. And I, I think, you know, the great thing about places like Dubai and even more so, you know, India, they, they definitely toughen you up, right? Well, that <laughs> no was, doubt about that. Yeah, I mean, look, this is a great, this is a great segue into what it takes to start your own company. And to be fair, you know, 2007 and 2010 in Hong Kong in the financial sector was not easy. It was everything but easy, right? I mean, that was sort of the end of, the heyday of the the big um, financial houses, right? I mean, Lehman goes down, Bear Stearns went down before it, right? And we forget how difficult it was back then. And then to jump out and start, you know, to to run that and to try to work it, you know, in E Trade doing that. But then to jump out in 2011 in Japan and try to start your own firm was just, you know, it was the height of risk taking. No, uh, in hindsight, <laughs> in hindsight, I think it was. Um, but you know, I, when I was in, I was in Hong Kong at the time and 
we really saw a great and having had all that experience at E-Trade and, and having made you know a ton of mistakes and and learning so much, um, it definitely made the transition easier. So I felt comfortable, and we were kind of moving into a parallel space. So you know, capital markets, online investing. So it was a space we knew really well, and we actually set up Hong Kong's first uh, was one of Hong Kong's first online brokers with E-Trade. So we were kind of there from the very beginning and knew the market pretty well. And there were a couple of factors in Hong Kong that made it interesting. Just the sort of unit economics and 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 the the margin on a retail brokerage trade in Hong Kong was sort of very different than most parts of the world, where there was a lot of compression, margins were thin. Hong Kong still still could make a profit from a from an online transaction. And then in addition to that, uh, obviously you had the the big promise of the cross border opportunity from from China. And at E-Trade, about forty percent of our clients were mainland Chinese. So you know we we firsthand saw that opportunity. Um, so you know made the move to start this business in in Hong Kong. And and you know actually in hindsight, no one was talking about fintech at the time. And I'm so thankful we launched at that time because we were able to get our license um, without a lot of friction. And if I imagine trying to apply for a license today, I think it's 10x harder. I think you're completely right because now you'd be actually going to get a license in the midst of hype, right? And there was no hype back then. And there's no hype around you per se in, in the sense that you're just basically coming out of a fintech background trying to go into start your own company. Whereas today, there's a whole bunch of pretenders basically, you know, people trying to ride a wave that they don't understand. And that has nothing to do with you, right? Right. No, I think I think that's right. And um, and, you know, there's there is an enormous amount of, of, of hype right now. There's no question about it. Um, but there's also, I think, a lot of interesting things that are going to come out of this, too. But, yeah, it was, you know, it's fortunate timing. I think it, it really would have been harder to to have launched now. And at the time, you know, there were no really not a lot of um, uh, online financial services businesses in, in Hong Kong, certainly no startups. Um, and I remember when we raised our first uh, capital, um, you know, there was there was no talk of, of fintech. And um, it was almost, I think, a disadvantage being in financial services because it was sort of seen as this, uh, you know, an older industry. It's 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 mature. It's going to be difficult to disrupt. So it had its challenges. Yeah, I'm curious how that capital raising went. Your, is your company based in Hong Kong? So the parent companies in Hong Kong? I mean, it, That's it, right. it sounds like it with a name like eight securities. It sounds very... <laughs> Sort of Chinese focused, right? That's right. It's headquartered in Hong Kong. Right, but so what was it like raising money? And was that raised from sort of not friends and family is a bad term, but like just from other people you knew in the financial services sector who kind of saw the same future that you did? Or did you have, I'd say, sort of early stage institutional money as well? No, it was, it really was uh, friends and family, but you know, the process was, was really difficult. I underestimated how hard it would be. So, you know, when I, when I made the move to, to do eight securities, um, the first step was I, I was, I was by myself and I, I was sort of self-funding the, the first, um, uh, the first year or so. And, you know, what I think a lot of entrepreneurs probably do is I completely underestimated the opportunity cost of not working. And, um, can I, can I translate that into English? That is the opportunity. I, I want to explain how hard it is not to have a salary. Right. Right. Very hard. And then, and then, uh, the genius that I am, I had ended up having five kids. 
And so you lay, layer that on top, and it was a really, really difficult position to be in. Um, so yeah, I mean, at the time, it was it was really hard to raise money, and and there was really not a lot of venture capital in Hong Kong. I, I, I think there's not a lot of venture capital in Hong Kong today. Yes, yeah, still I don't think isn't. Right? Have, yeah, there's not, and it hasn't improved much. But um, but you know, and, and I was so naive, you know, um, sending you know my pitch um, cold to. VCs around the world and you know I wasted a lot of time and, and sort of it took me a while to come to the conclusion that most VCs will not invest outside of their own geography maybe not even outside their own town. you know zip code right, right. their own town uh, yeah they, town. They, they define myopic right that's right that's right and you know and then certainly nobody um, uh, you know when we, we sort of consider um, uh, investing um, any kind of sort of long distance and certainly no one gets an investment cold either, right? It's no. almost always through referral. So I didn't know any of this right. and, and wasted a good chunk of time trying to raise, uh, raise money. But ultimately, uh, we found an investor. Well, what is pervasive in Hong Kong are family offices. And, and these are people that have wealth, um, and they're looking to invest it, um, in sort of different asset classes. And then some people, you know, have, a sort of tolerance for that that risk in startups and we found a, a great lead investor and it was amazing because you know you have you have a hundred people tell you no they have a right. hundred people telling you why it's not going to work and right. 101 reasons and you know it, it's hard for that not to sort of seep in you know when you're when you're going through this difficult process but it was amazing when the first investor came in we, we were able to sort of close the rest of the round in about two weeks um, so it's just to sort of um, take someone to take the step and then it de- sort of de-risks it for everybody else. And we were able to raise $8 million, um in our first round. So it worked out okay, but it was a tough process. Yeah, I mean, Vent, you joked earlier about my my desire to take risk, which I think is I probably didn't explain properly. But venture capitalists are inherently non-risk takers, and they are herd followers as well, right? So. They'll follow whatever trend is trendy, to be fair. And once you get one person on board, you getting the next six is much easier. Not easy for sure, but much easier. And the other thing as well um, is that in, in the vein of like non-risk taking, like you said, their likelihood to invest in something that's outside of their domain is really small, right? Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. And it's a numbers game. I mean, I want to point out in my mind, it's really a numbers game. And like you said, you could talk to 100 investors and none of them can say yes, and then your 101st is, starts a waterfall of people investing, and you wonder, should I have just started with that lady, and maybe she would have just been investing right away, but the reality is it's probably not the case. It's just a numbers game. The more you ask, the more the more you are likely to get someone to invest in your business, no? I, I agree 100%, and, and what I'd also you know point out, too, is I don't think it's gotten any easier. No, it hasn't. So we raised a few rounds, and you know the, 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 the sort of initial round was really difficult, but Every round we've we've raised, even though the business is growing and on a really good trajectory, it's it's not easier because it comes with its own challenges. So when I look at Japan, when I look at Hong Kong, there's just not a lot of sort of a round investors where the business is is still you know unprofitable, but it's growing and this this sort of issue that, that there's real risk there. So it's not not difficult to find um, private equity money when you're when you're profitable and right. growing and fairly mature. There's a lot of that. And there's a little bit of seed money, but it's that that venture capital in between seed and and profitable growth that is really hard to raise. So, how did you end up getting past that? 
just persistence, you know, it was just as you said, it, um, you just have to keep sort of beating on doors. And, and you know, we've been really fortunate in that um, our, our initial investors, we've only brought in one um, venture investor outside of the family offices. Um, and that's a company called Route 66 in D.C. So they invest exclusively in fintech. And um, but all, our investors have been with us since the beginning. So we've ultimately now raised. Uh, about 33 million and it's all come from the same group of investors. Right. And how happy are they? I mean, they must have a decent ownership stake in this business. And if you'd say it's growing as fast as it is, and frankly, it should be right. Um, then they must be super happy. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to make investors super happy or if they're super <laughs> happy, they're not going to tell me. They're not telling you for <laughs> sure. Um, but, but no, I, I mean, I, I hope so. And you know, it's, I, I see, um, you know, there's there's so many instances where you see difficult investors and, and companies, you know, blow up because of, of issues with, with their investors. And, and we've been really, really lucky. They've been really supportive. And what's been nice is, is they're really entrepreneurs as well. So I think the key thing for a great investor, if, if you're an entrepreneur, the one quality I would say is empathy. If you feel like that investor can be empathetic to what you're going through because they've experienced it, that's that's huge. It's, it's when you bring in investors that haven't been through it and, and have difficulty relating to what you're going through. Um, I think that's where you run into trouble. So we were lucky in that respect. Yeah, I mean, empathy is one of my favorite words, actually. And I don't think it just has to do with investing, but I agree with you completely. If the people that are investing money, you don't understand your struggle, they shouldn't give you the money in the first place because they're just going to be confused about why are sales down this month and why did you grow the past three months? Like it, none, nothing's going to make any sense to them at all. And they're not going to try to figure it out. They're going to put it through a microscope that has nothing to do with your business. If you have empathetic investors, you're really lucky actually. Exactly. And you know what it is, is, you know, I, I, I say this often, but, um, if, if we try 10 things, um, seven of them are going to fail. So whether we're talking about a product feature or a marketing campaign or whatever, seven generally don't work. Two might be okay, and one is probably going to work really well. So I always tell you know other entrepreneurs the name of the game is identifying that one thing that's working really well, double down, and then do ten more things. But it's those it's those those other nine things that that are have either failed or they're not working. I can't imagine being in a situation where you can't be open with your investors. You know, and, 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 you know, be very honest about those things because, because honestly, that's how you spend most of your day. And, and then it goes back to empathy. If an investor doesn't understand that, as you said, um, it just makes life really difficult. Yeah. And you've, you just basically explained trading strategy. <laughs> you may or may not know that. My first trading manager, and I was talking about this today or yesterday, I can't remember, a guy named Tommy Juderbach at Morgan Stanley said, said to us, you know, let your, one of the, one of the top five trading rules was let your winners run and cut your losses fast. But the, but the real metric around that was always know where you're going to get out. In other words, before you get into a trade, know where you're going to get out. And that's exactly what you've just said, right? If I try seven things and I find one, if I try 10 things and seven of them don't work, two of them are okay and one of them is great, double down on that. That's you just like letting your winners run. Exactly. Exactly. It's a great metaphor for trading. And the fact that you're in a securities business means, you know, you understand that, which is really great. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So tell me more about this business, right? I mean, it's been around now for six years, almost seven, right? And where do you, is it, do you, do you want to tell me like the, the biggest product? What's the, what's been the most successful thing you've done and where you see things go in the future? Like what do you, what do you think you're going to look like in three or four years? Sure. So, um, you know, 
in, in two words, we're in the business of mobile investing. So, and we see the market, it's, it's very simple. I think there's, there's two types of customers, um, out there. There are those that are self-directed and kind of want to do their own investing, and there are those that are passive. And for the self-directed customers, we have a trading app. Um, and for the, um, those that are passive and need a little bit of help, we have the, the robo-advisor. So those are our only two products. Uh, we're, uh, very sort of B2C, uh, focused. And, you know, it's, it's been interesting. So the way I look at it is the wealth management or robo-advisor business is definitely the bigger opportunity long-term. And I think there's a lot of naysayers today, um, that, you know, are skeptical about it or they feel like people are always going to want a human touch or an advisor. And I, I completely disagree because it really reminds me of my time at E-Trade in 99, 2000, where, you know, everybody said at the time, you know, this online brokerage is a niche and people are always going to need a broker. Well, fast forward to today, you know, 80, 90 percent of trades are online. I don't know any stockbrokers. I'm sure you don't either. No, I don't. And right. And I think the same thing is going to happen to uh, to wealth management. So long term, we really love robo advisor and, and this area of, of wealth management for passive investors. But in the short term, we have to be practical and, and, and think about how we're going to you know, sort of pay the bills and grow the business. And so we really focused uh, hard on on trading. Can you, can, can you explain this to me though? So my partner and I argue a lot about this concept of the human touch, right? And, you know, I think that humans are necessary, but I do think that they will use, and, and I love this. So one of my venture capitalist friends said this to me. People talk a lot about artificial intelligence, and he says, I like to talk about augmented intelligence. And mm-hmm. the point is that maybe some people like to talk to a human, but that human cannot be nearly as smart as another human who's using the robo-advisory service to advise clients. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. It does. And and I think that's kind of the trend where we're starting to see. Um, but I, I take a pretty drastic view with respect to um, to human touch. Tell me. You know, I, I think in financial services, um, I think it's it's definitely going to have its its Amazon moment. You know, one makes the argument that retail was necessary because people wanted to go in and physically touch a product and talk to someone, and 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 we're seeing retail you know get completely decimated across the board. And I don't see why financial services is going to be any different. I think I think the reason it may be even more dramatic in financial services is because all the products are inherently digital anyway, right? right, they're, not, right. they're not physical products. No, I don't need to touch a stock or a bond or an ETF, right? Exactly, exactly. And so, uh, you know, because of that, um, you know, I don't think the the future of of, of branches is is bright and. Uh, you know, I just I think anybody that doubts that if you just, you know, take a five year, 10 year view, I mean, do we honestly think that we're going to sort of be in the same playing field as we are now? I don't think so. Right. I mean, look, let's do a little history lesson. Right. You go all the way back to you go all the way back to Vanguard. Right. And Vanguard saying no one's going to want to buy individual stocks. Everyone's just going to want to buy a mutual fund. Right. Or, and Janus as well. And the industry back then said, look, we want to keep our 10% commissions. People want to talk to a stockbroker and they want to, they want to have somebody give them advice. And then when the, you know, now that there's a mutual fund history and even a hedge fund history, people realize that like with all the, uh, with your ability to sort of backtest stuff, the data is more important than any human could ever be. And technology is just going to disintermediate people's ability to make a decision, right? And if you look at the way trading is taking place, so much trading has to do with arbitrage, right? And uh-huh. no human can make an, a decision as fast as a machine can about arbitrage. And you can argue about whether that's good or bad. We can go back and forth on that for, for days. 
But you're right, right, in, in the sense that decisions are going to get made by machines. They just are. And there's no stopping it. And, and that's been happening for 50 or 60 years. It just keeps getting faster and faster and faster. Right? If you look back at the origins of online trading, meaning direct-to-market access, right, the original DMAs, when they built DOT and SuperDOT, it was just, you know, you had these teams at Morgan Stanley and other firms just saying, hey, if I don't have to talk to the broker or the guy on the floor, I can go directly to the exchange, I can actually trade better. And all you're doing is you're just the future of that, no? I, I think so. I think that's right. You know, I think that's how we, we sort of see the, the future. And, you know, the other element there, too, kind of beyond on, on product and industry is, is, is the customer. And there's this amazing phenomenon in Japan and, and certainly in Hong Kong as well where our robo-advisor product, you know, our clients are in their 20s and 30s, you know, early 30s. And they don't want to talk to anybody. They don't want to go into a branch. Um, <laughs> they, 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 they just want to. Yeah, they definitely don't want to talk to anybody for sure, right? And, and, and definitely. And, and so if you just think about sort of the future of, of wealth and, and this generational shift in wealth that's coming, you know, I, I just don't see it. I think it's all online. So what happens to the big trading companies or do they just acquire you and other firms like you? When they realized that they could not build any of this stuff internally, right? And, and, and I'll give you the genesis of that question, right? So I used to be in the portfolio trading group and everything we did was automated. As a matter of fact, that's how we became so profitable, right? Because there's no way you can trade 1700 stocks. Back then, that's what was in the topic, 1720 something stocks, right? There's no way you can trade all of them efficiently by hand. So we just kept building, building, building. Then we built a DMA um, product. We built an algorithmic product. And by the time we were done, we weren't necessary anymore, right? So I'm just wondering, like how, like how you see all this, how you see all this going, right? In in that in that in that context. Well, I, I you know I, I think it's I think it raises a good point, and it you know as we sort of look at our our future, you know, it's been it's been amazing how much new business we can can bring on. It's just I guess it's a scale, but bringing on new business without hiring people. And the technology is just getting better and better and better and more efficient. And, you know, people are often surprised, but, you know, we have five developers. We have five developers that manage, build and manage those two products across two geographies in four languages, uh, domestic infrastructure. But, you know, that's what the technology allows us to do now is incredibly efficient. And so, yeah, I think I think you're right, and and you know to your question about the banks, and I, I think everyone's sort of grappling with this uh, build versus buy. But um, I think there's a pretty high, and we we meet a lot of banks. I think there's a pretty high degree of of um, of a feeling that sort of you know fintech is here to stay. You know we need to take digital seriously. Um, I think people completely get that the next generation of customers are going to be 100% digital. So I think everyone comprehends that. It's just this this difficult scenario now where are we, are we going to acquire a partner or are we going to try to build it ourselves? And I think we're in a phase now because it's early where all of the banks are attempting to build it themselves. And I, I suspect it's going to you know be that way for the next few years. But I think they're coming to grips with it. It's, it's easier said than done. Right. I think their biggest problem is nobody trusts them. And, <laughs> but, and, and I think that's actually true. So if you look at who, what's his name? Max Levchin, right? Who came out of the PayPal mafia mm-hmm. building a company in the United States. And I don't understand why he named it this, but he named it a firm, right? Anyway, he's trying to give, and it's a fintech company in the sense that he's trying to help people 
you know, buy things that they can't necessarily afford on their regular paycheck, but can can make payments on. Anyway, his point was, you know, if he goes out and does a survey, the biggest problem that people have is that they don't trust, you know, the, the 10 least favorite companies are all the major banks. Right. Right. So if a, if a, the bank comes out and says, we have a product that where you can trade for nothing, right? So this is what Robinhood did in the United States. I presume you're doing something similar. You know, right. trade with us for free. Right. Exactly. Zero yeah, commission. No, exactly. Right. Zero commission. And what you, I mean, it's a great way to get people on the platform, right? But, but if Goldman Sachs came out and said, you can trade with us for free, right? Or if Bank of America, Merrill Lynch said that, people would just, put a weird eye on them and say, oh, I don't trust these guys. There's got to be some kind of catch. I'd rather trade with eight securities. I, I really believe that's happening. I think there's a secular change. And I don't think, you know, millennials and the future of trading is going to be with firms like Citigroup because I don't think anybody trusts them. Yeah, I mean, it, there's there's definitely that that issue. And, you know, as a startup, we have our own, you know, our own challenges sure. with, with trust, right? Sure. Um, but but I do think there's... Um, there's a likability with 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 startups um, that that isn't necessarily there with with big financial institutions because of the recent history, and you know it's it's been um, you know as you said you know we we look at this research and it's just so fascinating where you know you know two thirds of people would rather you know manage their finances with a Facebook or Apple you know than a bank and there's almost no loyalty um, and all these issues are 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 real. So, you know, for us, I think we're in a, in a pretty sweet spot where, you know, we're really focusing on, on millennials, focusing on, on younger clients. Um, and, you know, it's just, I think it's a great opportunity for us. I think it's massive. Do, do you watch what Robinhood does as well? I mean, they've been extremely successful and they've raised, I think it's actually a billion dollar company now. It is, yeah. They're over over a billion dollars, and and you know, no question, they inspired us uh, when we decided to go zero commission. So, we're the first uh, zero commission trading service in in Asia, um, and people think we're nuts for for doing it, but there's a really simple explanation of of why it's actually more profitable in the long term than than the sort of uh, commission based model today, and you know, the reason for that. Is I have a belief that anything that is a commodity and a or, or any transaction that's a commodity is eventually going to go to zero anyway. That's it's, that's the future. So trades are eventually going to be free. So our view was, well, let's be the first to do it. You know, let's capitalize on being first. And what it does is, even though you're not earning commission on your existing trades, your acquisition cost goes to almost zero. Exactly. So right. So you you're 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 acquiring a lot of customers at virtually no cost at all. And as you bring on more customers, your turnover and assets start growing. And just like Robinhood, I think the way to monetize that business is with with margin lending. Uh, so we'll be rolling that out next quarter. And, you know, again, longer term, that is a more profitable business than, than you know, commissions. And commissions are only going one way, right? They're, they're, they're going to go to zero. Um, so I think, you know, whether it's it's aid or it's it's Robin Hood, I mean, that's that's definitely the future. And I think those guys are doing an incredible job. And as you said, you know, a, a billion dollar uh, business now and in a pretty, pretty short period of time is impressive. Right. And I think this is the one thing that the tech press, even that even the tech press, I should say, doesn't really understand. And I don't think it's because they don't understand the finance business. It's that if it costs you nothing or or close to nothing to acquire a client, then you should do it. Because there are plenty of other services, particularly within fintech, that you can offer them for which they will pay. 
And that's where the profit is, right? Shorting, margin, all of these things make a difference. And, you know, the one thing, one of the questions that I wanted to ask the, um, the Robinhood guys, but I don't know them well enough to do this. So I'll ask you and, and you can say, you know, never mind if you'd like, but there's a big, you know, we, what, what some of the big uh, bulge bracket firms used to do was, you know, they would let you trade for very little money, right? And particularly when dark pools came in, they would watch all the trades that you'd make and they could build a risk book around that as well, right? I'm sure you know how that works. Uh-huh. Is there any sense that firms like yours or Robinhood are going to start trading on risk as well? In other words, build, I don't want to say a high frequency trading business because that's a different animal altogether. But if you have, if you have the positions, right? And you can see what people are buying and selling without sort of doing insider trading, right? Because we know we're not going to do that at all. But if someone says to you, where can I buy a million shares of Toyota? Would you do a risk business since you know where the market is because you have all this experience on the trading side? No, uh, you know, it's, it's just not us. And, and, and I think the simple reason for that is I think we, we always want to be aligned with the, the customer. And, you know, I think transparency is, is an enormous uh, part of, of building that, that trust. And so for us, you know, we're really clear about how we, we sort of monetize, um, uh, how we intend to make, make money. And I think just sort of keeping it simple, um, you know, aligning with clients, I think that's, that's where we want to be. And, you know, for us, it's, uh, I think being a retail business and a B2C business, I don't think we'd be very, be very good at that anyway. I, I understand. So you have talked a lot about Japan and Hong Kong, right? I presume that that's where most of your customers are. Do you do you or can you branch out into the rest of Asia? You know what I mean? Like, can you go to Korea? Can you go to Thailand? Can you go to the Singapore market, or are you already doing that? Well, I think that's the one thing that that makes you know eight really unique. And it was when we were at E Trade, as I mentioned before, we made a lot of lot of mistakes and. It was, and when we, when I mentioned we were in sort of 15 different geographies, right. we were running 15 different sets of technology, 15 different back offices, and that was just the nature of technology back then. And there just weren't, you know, that was the solution. But today, um, you know, we made it a point from day one when we began building our platform that it had to be multi-market, multi-product, multi-currency, multi-regulatory, multilingual, and that was an investment. But it allows us to run multiple geographies with one platform. So we, we run the exact same tech, exact same products in Hong Kong and Japan. And they're two very different markets with, with very different compliance and onboarding and, you know, localizations, which we make. But it is one platform. And so, you know, I, I think our, our perspective is we have we have a lot on our hands with Hong Kong and Japan on a sort of and if you factor in the cross border opportunity from China that's coming into Hong Kong you know right now in Asia it's probably about 70% of the of the market you know if we're talking about assets so for us i think we can focus on these two geographies but we'll be opportunistic and if there's opportunities to enter other geographies, you know, we'd love to do it. And we just love doing that. That's what we did it, did it E-Trade. I think it's fun. Um, I think it motivates us. So, you know, we definitely, definitely have that mindset that if, if there's a good opportunity, we'll take it. Yeah, you make a really good point. And I think this is something else that the press doesn't understand either. Trading a stock in Hong Kong is nothing like trading a stock in Japan, just the pure trading of it. What I used to, we used to call it the market microstructures, right? And I think that includes the regulatory, it includes the settlement cycles, it includes everything that's associated with doing it. And what's really interesting is that because you learned this, right, it was so hard to teach people this at big firms as well. And that was, yeah, we can set up electronic trading in Japan, but we cannot build a system that can only handle Japanese stocks. What are we going to do when we want to turn on Hong Kong? 
we cannot rebuild this from scratch. Right. right? Because technology building ends up being like a linear exercise, right? And if you go, I used to try to explain this to developers as well. If you make a decision to kind of go down a street and it's the wrong street, you can't just cut across, like you can't take a shortcut to a new street and then redevelop your technology. You almost have to go all the way back to the beginning. And it sounds like you guys have done that from the start. So you've thought this out really well. It sounds like you've architected it really well too, which means that if you want to turn on a new country, you already understand the market microstructures there and turning it on is okay. But again, you know, like you said, you can, and E-Trade itself can boast about being in 15 markets, but what they wouldn't boast about is just how hard it was unnecessarily being there because of all the legacy that they built into their original systems. Is, is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. You know, the, the, the cost structure of, of running that business was, was so high. And, um, and just, you know, complexity across the board. And I think you're right. I mean, I think people absolutely underestimate how difficult it is. I think you do have to sort of start from, from square one if you want to enter a new market and your technology wasn't purpose to be global. Right. It is really, really hard. And, um, and I, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, try and fail. And, you know, to your point earlier, you cannot, you cannot take shortcuts when it comes to localization, whether it's, the trade or user experience or I mean all of those things really matter so yeah I think it's um, it gives us a competitive advantage I think because it's not easy to do you know and the one thing we haven't spoken about and I think both of us have just taken it for granted is that your platform is mobile no it is yes do you want to talk about that a little bit and why that's so important in other words why people are not sitting at a desk using a desktop computer and trading stocks like they used to yeah, so, you know, taking, taking a step back, when we first started the company, we got it absolutely, we got our first product wrong. And our, our, at, at the time, in sort of 2011, we launched in 2012, um, it was sort of right around that sort of web 2.0 and personalization and all of that. And we said, we're gonna develop a, a desktop application that people are gonna be able to completely personalize. And whether you're an active trader, you're a beginner, you can build it to suit your own taste. And what we got wrong was th- that was too complicated. Nobody wanted to do that. And I'm, if I had to do I'm smiling. Over, I'm smiling, yeah, because it's so hard, right? Yeah, I mean, we 100% got it wrong. And, um, so if and, you had to do it over, you said? Yeah, so if I had to do it over, I, I think if I had to do over, it would be, I would have gone simple at the beginning. And what it forced us to do was kind of start over in a way. And we decided to go mobile first. And it's an important point. Of, of not being a sort of, um, you know, PC-based platform and then going to mobile because what you see with, with the E-Trades and Schwab's and everyone else of the world is they just take that desktop experience and cram it into a mobile device. It's, and it's horrible, it's right? It's never, like it's, it's never going to work. No, and it's, it's so complicated and, and difficult. So that's what everyone ends up doing. So for us, we said, let's start over. We'll, we're going to be mobile first. We're going to we're going to build for mobile. Number one, because we saw you know that trending, and 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 I think if you've got a good user experience, people absolutely will trade on their mobile. And uh, and it forced us to just start over. And you know, uh, Cedric, our CTO, you know, he, he he often tells people making things simple is it, it is actually really really hard. Um, you know, you can have a a, a trading platform that has all the bells and whistles and looks like a Bloomberg terminal. That's actually a lot. 
easier, easier to build way than easier. something really like minimalist and, and easy for people to use. Well, the design of a Bloomberg terminal is completely unconsidered. And, and I mean that with the, the utmost respect to Michael Bloomberg and the entire company. But it's basically, like you said, just give everybody every option and they'll figure it out on their own. But the reality is that simple design is actually ridiculously hard because you're taking things away. And you have to make the right decision on what to take away. And you kind of reiterated what I said, which I completely agree with. And that, just like, just like we mentioned earlier. And that is, if you don't go mobile first, if you try to retrofit a desktop application in any space to a, to a mobile thing, like, it's just never gonna work. And like you said, if you don't get it right at the beginning, you're gonna have to go all the way back to the start and then redevelop it. You might as well do that from scratch at the beginning. Exactly. That, that was our mentality. And, um, and I'm certainly glad we did it. And, you know, it's, uh, I mean, we see it all the time. Um, you know, other, other competitors that are, that are kind of, you know, want to make that transition from, from desktop to mobile. And, you know, it's just, it's a challenge. Well, it must make you smile because you're just so far ahead of them. And the more they try to retrofit their existing technology to mobile, the more they're digging a hole for themselves that they're just going to have to get out of later. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned, you made a really good point. You said that, um, you know, it is easier to give everybody all the features and let them figure it out. And that's kind of like what we did with our first product that I, I said yep. kind of, you know, wasn't successful. And so we, we, we had that learning and we, we used it. But the thing is, is if you bring in finance people to build financial products, <laughs> they have a really hard time doing that. They have a really hard time saying no or, or we, we, you know, we don't want this, we don't want that. So we really make it a point as much as possible to hire people outside the industry. So I love hiring, you know, our, our designers, our developers, our UX designer. I don't want people from financial services because I don't think financial services does that particularly well. So we really make it a point to hire people outside this um, this arena and they come in with really fresh and new ideas. Yeah. And the other thing is that they also come with embedded biases, right? So somebody who's worked in a financial services company comes with an embedded bias. So if we used yeah. to have this functionality, this was really important. We need to have that there. And it's a slippery slope into just dropping everything in the kitchen sink into it, which is not going to work anymore. And, and, and again, because you said your client base is different, it means that you have to build for them, not for their parents, right? Exactly. And you also have to make decisions. And when you think about, you know, when you're building a product for, for customers, you can't be all things to all people. That's just a sure way to, to fail and get yourself in trouble. Yep. You got to pick your market. And for us, I think like Robinhood, we just made a decision that we, we're not going to cater to the, the top two, three percent. Interactive broker can have those customers. They do hyperactive trading much better than we ever will. But let us focus on sort of the other, you know, I'd say 95%. Um, that, that, you know, just want to trade stocks. Maybe they trade once a month. That's fine. But that's really who we're, we're focusing on. So the other, the other tailwind you've had actually over the past four or so years, I'm, I want to be right here, is that stock markets globally have been going higher. Yes. Um, yeah, that, that, that certainly helped. We, we, you know, the, the, the big sort of crash in the, in the China market, I guess was 2014. Um, that was a pretty painful time because sort of volatility and retail right, trading right. just vanished. Died. Right, just dies. died. Yeah. And, um, and that's the one thing about, about, you know, especially Hong Kong is people are either all in or they're out. And, <laughs> right, and you, right. you've got to be able to survive those, those times. And, um, and again, I, that's why I go back and say we're really fortunate to have the investors, you know, we have because, you know, they were patient. Uh, they knew the market would come back. 
and they sort of supported us through those difficult times. Because the one thing I tell people all the time in our space is you you cannot market or advertise into bad sentiment. You're completely wasting your money. No. So when yeah, sentiment's does. bad, you don't spend, don't try to acquire customers because you can't. And so you kind of do have to wait it out. Yeah, I mean, look, we used to say all the time, right? A good idea in a bad market's a bad idea. Right. <laughs> right, right, and even even a middling idea in a great market's a great idea. So that's exactly what you just said, and you actually answered the question I was going to ask you as well: is how do you survive through that? You just have to have great support from your investors and from your teammates. So I won't even ask it, but yeah, I I completely agree. Look, it sounds to me um, like you've built an incredible business, but it also sounds to me like you've learned so much along the way, not just from what you were doing at eTrade but for also from what you were doing at the beginning of the building of this business as well. It's just refreshing to hear somebody who kind of lives by this, not only by this mantra, but understands that like there's a whole bunch of stuff you do know, but there's a whole bunch of stuff you don't know. And as long as you learn it along the way, you're like 75% of the way to success, I think. I think so. And you know, that, that is one of the, you know, the big challenges in, in Asia. And, you know, I'm, I have an American passport. I'm American. But that's the one thing about Americans, right? Is that, that there is a sort of high tolerance for risk. Failing is accepted. Yep. It's tough out here, right? I mean, I, I completely understand why, you know, uh, uh, someone in Japan or someone in Hong Kong, there's 101 reasons not to join a startup or not to start a company. And, and overcoming that is, is tough. But the, the main thing, as you sort of pointed out, is I think you've got to be self-aware and accept that, you know, you are going to fail. You're going to do things wrong. You're going to learn. And you just have to accept that. I think be open about it. I wish more entrepreneurs would be open about that because in this environment, it's almost like everyone's doing everything perfectly, but it's just not the case. And in every startup, right, it's like a, it's a, it's a sausage factory. I mean, it's just the truth. <laughs> right. Which means you don't really want to know what's going on back here, exactly, but exactly. as long as it tastes good when it comes to your plate, <laughs> right. then it's cooked at the right temperature. Right. Right. Oh my God. Look, I think that's a great place to end if you don't mind. And hopefully you've enjoyed this conversation as, as much as I have. Very much so. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Oh no, God, thank you. I mean, what you're doing is way harder than what I'm doing and you've been at it a lot longer. So, um, I'd like to thank Mikhail Abdullah, um, the co-founder and CEO of eight securities. And that just defines what he does on a day to day basis, but not who he is actually. And, and I really want to thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.